0: It's NOLA History Guy podcast for Saturday, May 1st, 2021. Welcome back to the pod. Yeah, we've had some challenges over the winter with getting this thing going, but we are back. Uh, as you know, we started the, the Patreon uh, patron uh, push on the website at the beginning of the year. And I've been trying to, to figure out what to do with the pod with that, but I think that what's happened with with the patreon stuff is that the content that you that that patrons that you guys and thank you so much for those of you who are are, are supporting the pod at a dollar a month to um to to read that that content because it's it's fun to to pull the you know the, the crazy oddball things out and that kind of thing uh we'll have an, another Alpharez today up uh in a little bit after uh, we record the pod um but yeah, I, I kind of am still at a loss of what to do with the with the podcast itself. You know, it's like I, I look at these people that, that are like support my podcast for five dollars a month. Okay, well that's sixty dollars a year. That's half of Prime, and I get Jack Ryan on Prime. You know, I get I get uh, the uh, I get I get flack. You know, I get I get a lot of things for that 120 dollars you know two podcasts uh. so i think we're going to stick with doing things uh just completely wide open for the moment you know come you know the, the weather's improving i'm sitting out at the coffee shop the birds are chirping well the train just braked. There was a, a there's a CSX train that just that just stopped right here, but you kinda get the idea. So we're gonna start with May first, which uh that's uh the beginning of the uh the official beginning of the occupation of New Orleans during the Southern Rebellion was May first, eighteen sixty two. So that's where we're going to begin. We're just gonna have a one segment pod. So I'm gonna do the, the the begging and pleading here a little bit up front, and uh, again I'll mention the the, um, the Patreon uh, system. Uh, Patreon, of course, is a is a website that's it's a a system that's been around now for several years, where if you want to support a, a creator. Of different kinds, and that ranges from anything from me. There's a lot of podcasts that use Patreon to, to provide content. Um, the way the, the approach that I take with Patreon is everything is still on the website. It's still on nolahistoryguide.com, and uh, so you don't have to log in. Well, I mean, you have to be a Patreon member and logged in to access the full articles, but I'm not posting them on Patreon directly, because I've got a plugin in for, uh, for WordPress that allows everything to just flow into NOLA History Guy. Now, what happens there is that, you know, I've been posting picture of this and a picture of that and uh, that kind of thing now for a long time to social media. And usually you say a few words about the picture, maybe a short caption. So uh, doing the same thing now, but instead of just posting directly to uh, a group or tweeting um making the post on the website and this is this has gone well since uh since january the idea is uh for example like today's may 1st and so since the beginning of the year uh there's there's a calendar uh that enrique alfarez did in 1940 and it's uh 12 months of the year with his illustrations of new orleans and so um so I've been doing those on the first or second of the month. So the idea is that, that if, you're, uh, if you're not a Patreon member and you go to the website or you click on the link through a group or through a tweet, it takes you to the page and you see the, you see the image for the day. And then maybe the first hundred, I, I believe I've got it cut off at the first hundred words, which, you know, it's like that's what you used to get when i'd post directly to the group anyway but i try to do a 300 400 word uh, article talking about the images now so you don't want to pay you get what you got on the group or you get what you got from twitter that's all good i'm 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 loving it you know it's like it's fun to talk to you guys about these things but if you like to support the pod or support nola history guy support my uh progress here with this stuff then by all means please consider becoming a patron so then there's a link and it's got a it's got the patreon logo and and a streetcar, and you'll see basically you just you click on that link it takes you over to patreon you sign up and say i want to support uh i want to support uh nola history guy for a dollar and what's a dollar a month twelve dollars a year you want to support me for more that's fine i haven't figured out what to do with that yet um maybe we'll give you a copy of the next book or something like that but we got to get the next book done so you know that kind of thing so that's basically the idea though and then you come back to nola history guy and when you're logged in as a patron now you see the whole article you don't see the cut off where it says hey you should join to read the rest of this Why are you're just going to read the rest of this we're gonna let the podcast go completely open for now um that's mainly because i never have really you know it's like I, I i need a producer right you know it's like i need you know dara's good at keeping me focused on the writing you know is my that's dara rockland book doctor uh who is my editor but yeah the the the, the pod kind of goes you know has had its ups and downs i kind of committing now to recording a bunch of podcasts in a week and then being able to distribute that out we'll see how that goes so we're going to leave that open and not part you know that, that there's no financial obligation to get to the podcast at the moment and yes i'm going to shut up in a minute and we'll talk a little bit about butler and 1862 uh as uh in, in a moment and then yeah then we'll try to get this going back you know once a week up oh, here goes the train yeah i'm out on canal boulevard uh on the back belt which uh that's another thing i've been experimenting a little bit with is uh is tiktoks uh taking train if you look for a uh, nola railroad if you're a tiktoker uh look for nola railroad all one word and i put up the little one minute one minute videos you know one minute clips of the of the trains as they go by so uh, yeah, here goes the the CSX train's heading eastbound now. It left the uh, New Orleans East Yard, and it's a little consist that's just going back over to uh, to CN or uh, Kansas, Kansas City Southern. Uh, not going across the river because it was only one. It was only one engine at this point. But I digress. So uh, thank you again to everyone who has uh, become a patron. Uh, thank you to everyone who's listening in the first place. I'm flattered that you're willing to take a little bit of time out of your week and uh, and listen to the history stuff. Please, by all means, uh, uh, send me a note. Either you know uh, uh, Twitter, of course, at Nola History Guy. Instagram at Nola History Guy. Uh, email, uh, and I'll put this on the show page. You know for NolaHistoryGuy.com, but it's Edward at EBRANLEY.com Shoot me a note, and if there's something that you'd like to hear on the pod, particular subject you'd like me to address, you know, some lead up with research depending on how much I know about something. You know, there's some things I can talk your ear off on the cuff. There's other things, obviously, I need to. To look up and do a little digging on so um so by all means please let me know you know just you know little things as we go along and uh so let's go ahead now and uh we're going to uh we're going to get the pod going here we're going to you know um, transition into today's subject which is going to be new orleans in the occupation the union occupation from m- that first may to december of 1862 Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit now about May first to December fourteenth, eighteen sixty-two. We're not going to talk about Butler. We're not going to talk about him as a person. We're certainly not going to get into the to, to the nonsense of the lost cause mythos, or at least as much as I can avoid here. So basically, Butler comes in. Now we've gotten you know the uh, backstory, right? Just to 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 uh, recap the. Union Navy has gotten past the forts, advanced to the city, and has compelled the surrender of New Orleans at the end of April 1862. Butler advances with an army between uh, you know, with a force between ten and fifteen thousand troops from Ship Island in support of the naval action. Basically, when when the forts are are shut down, when the, when 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 um, when the, when the uh, Farraguts squadron is able to get past Fort Jackson. And Fort St. Philip, it becomes a no-brainer, particularly when uh, Fort Jackson, uh, you know, when when two-thirds of the, of the garrison mutinies, and well, we're done at that point. So, Farragut comes up the river. The surrender of the city is compelled, and Butler is left in the city now, or moves up to the city. And becomes the occupying commander. He becomes, you know, basically the city is now under Union control. Now Farragut, of course, just advances upriver, right? He, you know, he's he's his his portfolio, his his task is is not complete at that point because the whole idea here is Winf- Winfield Scott's Anaconda Plan to surround the rebel territory like a snake and choke it. So Farragut's moving further up the river. He's, you know, within days, he's up to Baton Rouge. And by in two weeks, by 15 May, he's already looking at Vicksburg. Can't really do anything about it just yet. Needs more support. But Farragut's basically moving back and forth from New Orleans up and down the river, pretty much with impunity, right? He's not, you know, they're not, there's not really a problem here. Back in New Orleans now, Butler is in charge, and he's got four basic goals that he's looking, you know, four things that he's looking to do. Pacify the city, expand his command, get himself some more soldiers, reopen the port of New Orleans, and then address the issue of the enslaved within his command, within his uh, jurisdiction. So let's start with the first one, and that's going to be pacify the city. Now, overnight, the Union Army and the Union Navy become the defenders. They're no longer the attackers. When it comes to New Orleans, attacking New Orleans, you know, once you're there, once you're, you're just, you know, once once you're staring at St. Louis Cathedral from your ship, things are pretty easy, right? You've got you've got Porter's uh, bomb vessels. Those, uh, those mortar schooners, you could pretty much just lob shells into New Orleans and essentially just, you know, just just firebomb the city into nothing. But then you could also take the, the ship's guns, the regular cannon that are on the, uh, the, the ships that are under Farragut's direct command, just go upriver a little bit and start blowing holes in the levee, create a crevasse, you could then basically, it happened in 1845, you know, you, you breached the levees and next thing you know, the city of New Orleans was flooded, uh, arguably to you know, a greater extent than Hurricane Katrina in 2005 when the, uh, when the canal levees failed. So just go blow a hole in, in, in the levee and, and watch everything drown at that point. So obviously you don't you're in charge now you don't want that to happen. So what Butler does is now he's got this force of about 15,000 troops. He takes roughly and I'm I'm being a little footloose with the numbers here but you know forgive me for that. I haven't done a lot of detailed research on, you know, breakdown on who he uh, you know who he tasked to do what. But initially what he's doing is he's spreading out Ten thousand of those fifteen thousand to ring the city and establish a defense perimeter outside the city. That way, you know, just go out enough that you that basically you can't get guerrilla warfare. You're not going to get anybody coming down from Baton Rouge to try to bust open the levees and then flood the city and obviously attack the city directly, you know, uh, you know, in terms of, of a, a real advance. So he's got so he, he sets up a perimeter, about ten thousand troops to block off approaches to the city. That leaves him five thousand roughly troops for defense of the city and for pacification inside the city itself. Now that's a that's a challenge and uh the the again, the numbers are varying here. you know most sources say he held back five thousand. his uh autobiography, his own notes he he's talking about uh, he's Butler's talking about use uh, having about 2500 troops inside the city. Now, now that could be Butler lowballing the number because gosh, if you ever read the stuff between Butler, Farragut, and Porter. I swear, each one of them. You think they were the only one in charge, and and they they alone say you know uh, captured New Orleans and that kind of thing. But it's also possible he's looking at it from twenty five hundred. But then you know you have uh, at that point you have uh, the city of Lafayette, which is now the Garden District. You've got the you've got Jefferson City. And then you've got the city of Carrollton. So, you know, a lot of that is still Jefferson Parish. So if you look at Butler talking about pacifying New Orleans, then it, that could be where some of that discrepancy happens. But anyway, point is, he's got a, a, a city of about 150,000 people, and he's got uh, anywhere from 2,500 to 5,000 uh, troops to deal with it. Farragut's gone. I mean, the gunboats are, are up and down the river. They're coming back to New Orleans for repairs, but that's not immediate. That's not May. You know, that's not that, that initial part, right? So Butler needs to get in and do some immediate pacification type stuff. The, the first thing that he does is to deal with the issue of William Mumford, Basically, you know, you've got a commanding general that comes in, you've got an occupying force, and one of the, you know, using violence to establish and, uh, your control and establish what you're doing in, uh, in a new territory, that, I mean, gosh, that goes back, well, it goes back beyond the, the Romans and into the Greek city-states, uh, it, you know, and further back even than that. Basically, put down leaders, put down rebellions, that kind of thing. Butler gets to the city on on, on May first, and he hears the story of William Mumford. Mumford and uh, uh, like six other other men climb up to the roof of the U.S. Mint building. We call it now, of course, the old U.S. Mint, and it's better described now, of course, as the uh, as the New Orleans Jazz Museum because it's. You know, that that is what is in the old U.S mint now, but it wasn't old back in the day, right? It was it, you know the, the, the mint minted coins. Uh, and um, it was that and the and the custom house in the 400 block of Canal Street, those are the two big symbolic points of federal authority inside the city because you know, the mint was a, a big operation. And then of course the custom house, was the, uh, kind of like it was the big federal building of the time. So so the, uh, a, a group from the US, uh, a, a, a detachment from the USS Pocahontas comes into the city. Marines from, uh, you know, Marines detailed to the USS Pocahontas come up, go to the Mint, hoist the American flag, and then as soon as they they're done with that, On 25th of April, Mumford and his buddies go up to the top of the Mint and pull down the Stars and Stripes. Butler gets wind of this when he gets to the city on the 1st of May, and he orders Mumford's arrest. So they arrest Mumford, they take him into custody, they try him before a mil- Butler tries him before a military tribunal, and he's sentenced to death. They execute Mumford on the 7th of June. So basically, you know, a little over a month, uh, you know, five weeks or so here, Mumford is in custody. But it's like, as soon as he gets there, it's like, you, you demonstrated uh, you know, resistance to the union, you're under arrest, we're going to hang you, that kind of thing immediately. Pacification moves, it's, it's important. Side note on Mumford, Mumford's executed uh, at, uh, on June 7th at, in the courtyard of the U.S. Mint. It's the symbolism of this was not lost on Butler, and you know, I don't know who recommended it to him, uh, you know, to actually you know, hold the execution at the Mint. But there's a couple of things here. Again, the Mint was a big symbol of federal authority inside the city for years, uh, you know, after its construction. Prior to it be. Prior prior to the U.S. Mint being built there on the corner of Esplanade, Esplanade and the River, Esplanade, the end of the French market, that corner was the site of Fort St. Charles, and that goes back to like 1715 or so. So we're talking literally 150 years earlier, that corner was a symbol of French colonial authority, and then later... Spanish colonial authority, and it was built. Obviously, you know the the idea there was just the same the same thing that you hear about forts in the Western expansion is you know basically a defense where the town could go into the fort if there was ever any kind of attack by indigenous people. So it becomes that that corner is the beginning of, of the the expansion of New Orleans. So it's got symbolism for uh, for. Uh, people of French-Spanish, of Creole heritage to, you know, say, not only am I putting down your resistance, I'm putting it down in your space, that kind of thing. So then Mumford, okay, so he's executed, he's buried at Cypress Grove Cemetery, at uh, the end of Canal Street at City Park Avenue. Interesting little side note then on Mumford, he's later reinterred across the street in the Confederate Memorial by the Ladies Benevolent Society. It's a big tumulus where they relocated, reinterred uh, Confederate veterans after the war uh, into, the, you know, basically reinterred rebels there from Chalmette Cemetery, which had then become a, uh, a big burial ground for uh, U.S. colored troops in particular. And uh, so in 1950, they reinter Mumford from Cypress Grove to across the street in Greenwood. But that's that. Yeah, that that's just part of it at that point. Okay, so so Butler is going through, and he's make he's making the moves to pacify the city, white people well or the lost people who are, are, are uh, favorite who favor the lost cause narrative like to describe the city as a hotbed of hostility towards Butler and the Union Uh A little more uh, dispassionate research on this suggests otherwise, and specifically when I say suggest otherwise, that there wasn't as much pro-rebellion sentiment in the city as one would expect. And that comes because of the issues with the Irish and the Germans, but we'll get there. But still there was resistance and there was opposition and one of the big things from a, a morale a morale standpoint with the Union Army is the idea the notion of the um, basically the idea of uh, the women of New Orleans harassing the uh, harassing the uh, the troops. Now one of the things there think about this you know it's like come on use your Use your, your your Cold War spy sense. If you watch some, you know, you, you read John Le Carre novels, or you read you know um, Tom Clancy stuff. Women were are have to this day, even you know from from e- before then, you know, of course back time immemorial, women are incredibly valuable assets in any kind of fifth column or or, or undercover guerrilla resistance type movement. And the ladies of New Orleans were untouchable in that sense by the Union troops. So they start with the insults and that kind of thing. But then there are women inside the city that are using that as cover to engage in resistance. Now, you've got that going on. So Butler needs an out. Butler needs a way to stop, interrogate, challenge, and if need be, arrest women of New Orleans, so he issues General Order 28. It's only one paragraph, so I'm going to read it to you. This is General Order 28. As the officers and soldiers of the United States have been subject to repeated insults from the women, calling themselves ladies of New Orleans in return for the most scrupulous non-interference and courtesy on our part. It is ordered that hereafter when any female shall by word, gesture, or movement insult or show contempt, For any officer or soldier of the United States, she shall be regarded and held liable to be treated as a woman of the town plying her avocation. Translation, we can now arrest you for prostitution. Or we can accuse you of being a lady of the town, a woman of the town, not a lady, plying her avocation you're trying to, to organize something for your man, your man's out at war, you're trying to do what you can to get things to, to establish resistance, the U.S. Army can now identify you as such, accuse you of being a prostitute, and arrest you, interrogate you, incarcerate you that is a huge thing in terms of pacification the more the 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 morale issue too yeah you know it's like nobody wants a chamber pot dumped on them from a second floor window while you're on patrol. so certainly the outward symbolism here is important but general order 28 went beyond that it goes into actual pacification. now of course the order itself uh yeah it, it, you know, the, the lost cause deals with that and we're not going to get into that the one thing i like about I, I, the one thing that always just impresses me about that though is when general order 28 basically becomes the equivalent of bulletin board material in sports you know how you uh, coach for another team or a player for another team insults the team so what do you do you take the news article and you tack it up on the bulletin board in the locker room that's exactly what Gus Beauregard did when Butler issued General Order 28. He had it read out to his troops before they would go into an engagement to remind them of what they were fighting for and that kind of thing. But the whole point to General Order 28 is pacification, okay? So that's, that's that first goal of Butler, right? He hits town. He's got a small occupation force relative to the size of the town. But it turns out that maybe that's not as important as he, you know, it's like, well, he makes the moves immediately as you would expect and then starts realizing maybe we can, yeah, it's, maybe it's not as bad as I thought it was and we'll get there on, on as, as we keep going. Second thing that, now remember, he's hitting town, he's doing these pacification type moves. The next big thing is he wants to set up or and expand his command. Now he's got basically 10,000, troops that are out a defensive perimeter. He can expand that now by taking some of the militia troops that were in the city prior to Lovell leaving know, cutting and running and the rebels leaving New Orleans. The the story goes like this. Basically, when Louisiana seceded from the Union, in January of 1861, a number of militia units were formed by men of the city. One of the things here is it's almost like the, the parallels, the parallels of these militia units to uh, Vietnam War era uh, National Guard units were, were really, are, are really kind of interesting. You know, it's like, you, you you know the type of unit you could join the National Guard, and you were set up now in, in a, uh, almost a civil defense, you know, or a homeland defense role with some of these units. They were not to be deployed. They weren't gonna go they those guys weren't going to Vietnam and that's where you get into these champagne units and defense units and that kind of thing. The Creoles of Color in particular Inside New Orleans, when Louisiana seceded, they kind of, sort of did the same thing. They formed these militia units and drilled, and you know, had company meetings, and and you know, basically were part of you know, or declared themselves to be part of the city's defense. Now you know this is this is black people, so Mansfield Lovell, the commanding rebel general, he's not terribly interested in taking on. Uh, on, taking on units of black, even you know, even if they're free, uh, free blacks, forget it. Right, uh, it, it's not part of the con- the the whole the whole rebel charter, as as it were, at that point. So these basically, when so Lovell cuts and runs in the face of Farragut coming up the river, and he leaves these militia units behind, well, because they're black, and and that was what that that's exactly what the Creoles of color had in mind. They didn't want to go to war for the, you know, for the rebel cause, for the Southern cause. So their charters kept them in town. Butler shows up and all of a sudden, some of these militia officers, uh, militia commanders and and soldiers themselves, you know, basically, you know, townsmen who are Creoles of color, a lot of them are now saying, hey, you know, we'll fight for you. You know, it's like, it's like, we don't, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to go off, yeah, you know, we don't want to go up into the into to Grant's army or you know, we're not going to go fight in in Tennessee or Georgia, but we will serve under you in defense of New Orleans. So Butler raises the three regiments called the 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 well, the corps d'Afrique, Africa Corps, literally basically men of color. Who are free now? Remember, free men of color, not enslaved yet. We'll get to the you know we'll get to the enslaved in a moment. So he organizes three regiments of infantry. Basically, they they call them the Louisiana Native Guards, first, second, and third regiments, and then he puts them out onto that perimeter. He uses them as part you know pickets to guard the railroad, to guard the levees, and so he's expanded his command beyond those initial 10,000 troops that allows units to move in and out a little better and have a little more flexibility as well as generally strengthening his position that's incredibly important because remember the rebel government in Birmingham Davis and his his staff as well as commanders up the river up in you know in Baton you know or moving on Baton Rouge That's the idea, is they're looking at what they can do to mount a counteroffensive and take New Orleans back. So Butler's immediately making these moves to protect from that. Point number three, Butler needs to reopen the port. There's a big reason why he has to do that, and that's exports. Yeah, he's got to he's got to get food and supplies into New Orleans, but the big thing is he needs to get exports flowing again. Why? Quite simply, he needs to get cotton leaving New Orleans and going to Europe, going to England, going to to Britain and going to France. One of the things you hear about throughout a lot of lost cause stuff is, well, the South would have won if it was if, if the French and the British would have recognized the Confederacy, that, It's an interesting argument, right? So what is Butler and, and, and what you know what what's Butler's role in, in making sure that doesn't happen? Reopen the port of New Orleans. This isn't a ro- well, yeah there, there's a certain amount of romance here, and the, most of the lost Cause mythos is based on romance. But this is just raw gut economics. British textile industry needs raw cotton. They want to make fashions. They want to make clothes. We're getting into that kind of thing. So you need the raw materials. Since November of 1861, those raw materials have been blockaded. You can't plantate plantations, cotton growing plantations can't Get their, get their crop to port. Once it's in port, they can't get it out and get it to other parts of the US, much less Europe. Merchants in Europe can't sell anything, they're not making any money. Reopen the port, get the raw materials out, guess what? All of a sudden, there's really no need anymore for France or for Britain to take the side of the South. If the stuff is flowing, the money is coming, They're less interested, so Butler needs to get the port open. Well, he's got the port open. That's kind of easy in that sense because the because the Union Navy is going to let ships now leave and go out to Europe. But he's got to get the port working again. And the problem there is, of course, is that it's been closed since the the uh, previous November. The port's been out of uh, basically out of production for six or so months because of the blockade and the port workers, the longshoremen, the skilled labor that works in and around the port, either at, you know, cotton press warehouses, transportation, longshoremen, et cetera, et cetera. Who were those people? They were the working class, what we would call the working poor of New Orleans at the time. They are mostly Irish and German immigrants, and one of the things that lost cause accounts of this time uh, period don't take into, uh, don't factor into their story, is that these people were out of work and hungry. Their families had little to to nothing to eat. They had no money. There was no way they could buy what little bit of supplies could have been, a, were around at that point. Their families are going hungry. What do they do? Well, they join the rebel army in the hopes that maybe an ar- that army pay would get them something. Well, Of course, the rebel army's broke, so that didn't happen, but that's one of the factors that contributes to the mutiny at Fort Jackson in late April and go from there. So, the, so the Union Navy moves up to the city. Butler takes over. He's got to get the port reopened. He needs these men to go back to work. So what does he have to do? He's got to feed them. He's got to feed the working poor. Enter General Order 25, which orders any kind of stockpiles that were that were or, or and, uh, of of meat and uh, flour, rice, etc., that are available that were held back for the use for the rebel army or for rebel supporters, you know, rebellion supporters inside the city. That's all now busted loose, and he orders distribution of all of that to, basically, to the Irish and the Germans. People start eating. He starts getting, uh, yeah, basically, he's like, okay, we're gonna start, we're gonna get the port back going. You people are gonna go to work. How does he pay for that? Well, he's got to pay for it somewhere, and that's where uh, basically declares a whole bunch of, levies a whole bunch of taxes, well, ostensibly taxes, on the wealthy of New Orleans. Now, the wealthy, the uh, at that point, that's going to be rebel sympathizers and outright rebels for the Southern cause. He has no problem enforcing that. When they refuse, what does he do? He orders his troops To go into the homes of, quote, the wealthy, unquote, and confiscate gold and silver from those homes. So that's he's he's taken the silver forks and the silver spoons. He's taken the tea services and the plates and the gold candlesticks. Anything that can be melted down and turned into hard currency, he's confiscating it as taxes to pay the expenses of reopening the port. That's where the spoons thing comes in. He's not stealing the sugar spoon from the fine dining, uh, fine... Uh, homes of New Orleans, he's got his guys go, he's got his his soldiers going in and just looting. They're cleaning out everything. They take all that back over to the mint. They melt that down. They turn that into silver bars and silver coins. They're now paying the Germans and the Irish again, who can then in turn buy food for themselves and their families in the market. Then it expands from there. This is May of 1862. It's getting hot. You guys know what, what, what May and June are like here in New Orleans. It's getting warm out there. So Butler knows that as the weather gets warm, the mosquitoes are coming, yellow fever, is going, you know, yellow fever breakouts are inevitable. The last thing he wants, remember I mean, this guy's from Massachusetts, right? He says, I'm not getting yellow fever. I'm not going to have these Wisconsin boys and, And troops from other parts of the, you know, from other states in the, you know, in the north coming in and getting sick and dying because of yellow fever. So he starts bucking up sanitation and public health in a big way. And again, he's paying for this with quote unquote taxes on the wealthy. So the spoons, yeah, he's melting them down and he's paying people. He's paying workers inside the city as well as getting uh, his troops now that are uh, basically to work on getting uh, getting clean water, improving the sewage uh, uh, situation, improve sanitation in general inside the city, improve public health, make sure you don't have like standing water ponds that are going to breed mosquitoes. Try to keep that out in the swamp, right? Keep the city clean, re-establish public health and that was huge because, in particular, that summer of 1862, the, uh, the threat from yellow fever was much, you know, was seriously reduced at that point. So that's goal number three. He gets the port reopened, the city is cleaned up, things are, you know, goods are moving through the port again, particularly to England and France, and that becomes a big deal. That brings us to the fourth goal, if you will, of those first six months, and that is that Butler has to deal with the issue of enslaved Africans. So we have to address the issue of the enslaved. And Butler comes up with a really good strategy for this uh, as he's uh, as he's uh, working through occupation and general administration of the city. He takes the enslaved, basically chattel slaves now, we're not, you know, uh, not talking free people, just outright chattel slaves. He takes the enslaved and declares them contraband of war. Pause. Ed's putting on his modern hat for a minute. Please, my African-American friends and folks who listen to this kind of stuff and cringe at the language and terminology okay we're talking 1862 here we're not yeah you know, we're we're not very enlightened in 2021 in some ways as you guys know from current events uh but so please just keep that in the back of your head when I'm talking. This is me, the history guy talking, not the guy not, not the guy who's upset with what the legislature's doing. Thank you very much hitting return on that taking off my my personal hat and getting back to it. Contraband of war. Yeah, people as property. Butler is a two-star general. He's a major general. He doesn't have the muscle to free the slaves at that point. Enslaved Africans are, you know, it's just, he he, he doesn't have that kind of muscle. He's whatever. If he were to just say, okay, you're free, it's not going to fly. So he doesn't. He confiscates them as property. They're still property. They're not people yeah you know what i'm saying i hope you know what i'm saying here but the point is now he's saying okay you you are contraband of war you no longer belong to your master you are property of the us government and as property of the us government and as the representative of the us government I, I, I'm going to let you be a person again. And we're going to put you to work in the city on some of this sanitation and public health and infrastructure stuff. You're going to do what you can do, unskilled, skilled, etc. We're going to pay you. We're going to feed you. We're going to house you. But you don't belong to that white man or that Creole color any longer. That's the big thing there. This is incredible because it, it spreads, this strategy spreads to other Union commands, and so other Union generals start declaring captured enslaved people in their areas, in their area of command, as contraband of war, and they start following Butler's example. This actually leads to well. First off, it starts putting a big hurt, and this is prior to the Emancipation Proclamation. Starts putting a hurt on the rebel infrastructure because the rebel governments and the the, the, the you know, from from the, the the CSA government in Birmingham all the way down to the plantations, they're relying on the enslaved like they've done for for centuries. Literally at that point. To um, basically to to do the work while they're off at war, they've got to raise the crops, they maintain the infra, they tend to the infrastructure. Now the enslaved are migrating; they are making their way into Union-occupied territory, and they're saying, "Make me contraband." And it worked in New Orleans; it had a bigger impact. That bigger impact also has a personal impact or personal consequences for Butler because it's making Butler look good. and it's making Butler look like yeah, you know, it's like the port's reopened. The, the the port's reopened. the city is improved. The city survives the summer of, you know, the, 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 the epidemic season of 1862. Things are looking better in New Orleans at that point. Yeah, the, the, the white people who write the history will, will have a different take. But the point is, the ports reopen, the economy is moving, sanitation and public health are incredibly improved. Butler's looking good, and this whole thing with the the enslaved is making him look better. The problem is that Butler's a Democrat. And remember, Lincoln and his government and his cabinet, they're Republicans. And that becomes a bit of an issue in general on a macro level. And so Butler doesn't get... Relieved from command in New Orleans, he doesn't get reassigned because he's doing badly or because he stole spoons. There's some foreign issues like you know coming in and raiding the Dutch consulate to get back the the uh, to get back the money from Citizens Bank. You know there's there's issues like that where you know but in Butler's intemperance, if you will, that kind of thing. But the big thing is Butler's doing too good for he's you know he, he's he's a victim of his own success. And that's the idea is that as much as the union government wants that to continue, they don't want it to continue with a pop, a Democrat who could be popular and could be a challenge, if not for Lincoln immediately, in, for other Republican candidates in the near future. So they reassign him from New Orleans. They send General Nathaniel Banks down, who continues the idea of Try you know working to uh, to support the city and also to bring Louisiana back into the fold as a state. That's another story. We'll talk about that another time. But that's basically the six months. So Butler's goals: pacify the city, chalk it up as a success. Baton Rouge is uh, uh, Baton Rouge is taken by the Union. Any chance of a counteroffensive on from either direction down the drain and occupation of the Mississippi uh, of, of the Mississippi River under control. Expansion of his command in support of pacifying and defending the city chalked that as, uh, up as a success by getting the native guards to fight for him. Reopening the port. He gets the Irish and the Germans back to work on the riverfront. He feeds them and their families. The economy reopens, picks up again. Those folks now have jobs. They are earning salaries again. Foods coming into the city, both from plantations and local, and then imports from the port. Things are picking up. Sanitation and public health. He's putting people to work to clean things up, and he's paying for all of it with silver and gold confiscated from rebel families in the city. The enslaved, his fourth issue or fourth big thing, addressing that issue by declaring them contraband of war, turning around, kind of free but not free sort of thing there, and of course, naturally, now the, the the enslaved want to work for Butler. He puts them to work on all that public health and infrastructure stuff, and that continues to improve the city. He's gone by December of 1862, but his success is so great that the Lost Cause mythos demonizes him to the extent that no doubt when I put this podcast up, I'm going to have spoons and beast comments all over social media, but you get the idea. So that's Butler. That's those, that, that's those first six months, and it started on May the 1st. Okay, and that's the pod for this week. Thanks again for, for your support. Thanks for listening. Let me know if you have any comments, thoughts, or suggestions on, on this episode, and anything for that matter. And, uh, yeah, if you have any suggestions for things you want to hear, uh, for images you want to see, topics you want to discuss, by all means do that. Thanks again to our Patreon patrons. Remember, just click the link on the bottom of any article you see that says support us, and Uh, And please consider doing that. We appreciate you. You guys go have a great day, and we will talk to you soon.